Hey everybody, welcome back. Whether you're watching on the YouTube channel or listening to us over the podcast, we're glad that you have joined us. It's Easter week, and uh, accordingly, we're going to suspend our series on the Sermon on the Mount for this week only. Uh, you can still catch all of those on the YouTube channel and the channel and the podcast. So please go back and do that if you've missed any of those. But we're gonna we're gonna focus on focus on this week, the most important week in the history of the world. Not just when Jesus came, but certainly that's when it put he put it all in motion. But it's continued to be the most important week in the history of the world for all peoples of all times, and that's Easter. Now, if you're not familiar with the Easter tradition, traditionally the church would celebrate Easter on a seven-day cycle in general, meaning starting with Palm Sunday, which we've just come through, heading all the way back around seven days later and finishing with Easter Sunday with various celebrations and observances in between. So as we look at this week that's called the Passion Week or Easter Week, I want to do something a little different with you. I not so much want to preach a sermon to you as I want to take the time to put us in the sandals or the shoes, if you will, of the disciples themselves. As Jesus followers, I think it's really important for us to do that, to begin to really grasp hold in a tangible way. What is the meaning of Easter? And, and, and as we look at what the disciples themselves went through, I think we're going to find that there are a lot of similarities for us and things that we walk through as we follow Jesus. I'd like to start it off by actually going back 700 years before Jesus even came to be with us on the earth, when the prophet Isaiah wrote very specifically about Easter, in particular about Jesus and Jesus' crucifixion and why He was going to die for us. This would have been something, a set of verses that uh, the Jewish people were very familiar with. Even though it was written some 700 years prior, it was passed down from generation to generation. It was read over and over and over again in the synagogues and preached and taught to the people outside of the synagogues. Isaiah 53, verses 3 and 6, 3 through 6, says this He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and he and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weakness he carried, it was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's past to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Some 700 years before Jesus would come to be with us, Isaiah wrote, wrote that. Now I want you to just kind of hold on to that as a framework, a foundation for all the things we're going to talk about just for the next few minutes. And I want to pause there and put you right into the disciples' shoes. Now, when you, when you study the history of that week, it's likely that Jesus and his disciples traveled to Bethany, which is a small village about two miles to the east of Jerusalem, where Mary and Martha are from. They'd been there before, where Lazarus, who they raised from the dead, is from. And so it's likely on Saturday night, they traveled there and had dinner at Mary and Martha's house, with Palm Sunday being the very next day. Disciples were upbeat. They, were, they, were, they along with Jesus, were headed to Jerusalem. 
there had been a growing sense of this is it. Jesus is finally going to declare the beginning of his kingdom reign. Even though they had been with him for years, they watched every move with childlike expectation of what was about to break forth. They knew Isaiah, but perhaps they had forgotten that it applied in this moment. Perhaps they thought he wasn't talking about Jesus when he wrote that. Perhaps they didn't want Jesus to be the Savior that Isaiah was talking about. Many speculate that Judas betrayed Jesus for that very reason, that he wasn't the Messiah King that, G that Judas had wanted or that other people had wanted for that matter. You see, the crowds looked for a Messiah who would rescue them politically and nationally. But what they didn't realize was Jesus was coming to rescue them spiritually. And so they leave on Sunday morning, Palm Sunday, from Mary and Martha's house in Bethany to make the two-mile trek to Jerusalem. They come down the Mount of Olives into the Kidron Valley, and then they start their ascension up towards the eastern gate of Jerusalem with Jesus on a donkey that he has sent his disciples ahead to acquire for the trip in. People are beginning to gather. It's also the Passover, and so the city is swollen with people who have come to celebrate largely the biggest national and religious holiday in Israel's history, and they're all in Jerusalem for it. Some estimated it at about 125,000 people. And so the crowds are beginning to gather and go with Jesus as he rides this donkey in through the eastern gate, which, by the way, prophecy and tradition spoke to that, saying that this would be the entrance point for the Messiah into Jerusalem. And people were cutting palm branches and waving them and throwing them down before him and announcing him as the Messiah as they entered the city. And as they went by the throngs of people headed towards the temple, people were asking, what is going on? What, who is this? Why are you shouting? And they began to explain to the people in the city who he was. But what they didn't realize was this was just Jesus' opening provocation setting in motion, if you will, the things that must follow in the next few days. And the provocation was not directed at the Romans who controlled the area and the city. It was directed at the religious leaders. So they go through the city and they make it to the Temple Mount, and the Scriptures tell us it's late in the day. Jesus goes in and everyone is thinking, finally, this is the moment. He looks around and he quietly leaves. What? Everything that they have believed and everything that they have followed Jesus into has led, they think, into this moment of Him coming to declare His kingdom and His reign at this moment in Jerusalem. But He turns around and He leaves and He goes back out of the city and He goes back to Bethany. Now, we know that He comes back during the week. We have the cleansing of the temple uh, one or two days later. We don't know exactly which day that occurred on. So he's coming back and forth and he's engaging the religious leaders in, in different ways. But everyone's confused and they're not sure, Jesus, what are you doing? Maybe you've felt that way at times in your life. God, what are you doing? I just can't understand it. I can't, it's not what I expected. And this was certainly not what the disciples expected. But they believed in him and so they stayed with him and they kept following him to see what he would do next. The, next. the funny thing is, Jesus had already told them what's about to happen. If we look at Luke chapter 24, verses 45 and 46, it says this, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, 
Thus it is written what the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And if you look at Matthew, or sorry, Mark chapter 10, he says, Behold, in much detail here, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, which is a reference to Jesus, will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles, in this case the Romans, and they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And yet somehow they're with him in this, this moment that's it's almost come to be and they have no idea what's about to happen. Now, around this time too, the religious leaders had tried and trapped Jesus by asking him for a sign. And he further explained it this way that, that the people would understood as well. He says, I'll give you the sign of Jonah. And he says in verse 40 of chapter 12 of Matthew, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Again, very specific, very detailed, what is, is about to happen. Now I want to pause here for a second because you might have a question that many people have asked. Okay, I understand that church tradition is the crucifixion happened on, on Friday, Good Friday as we call it, and the resurrection happens on Sunday. How in the world then can you have three days and three nights? You could say you could maybe have three days and two nights possibly, but how do we reconcile that? It would seem like a flat contradiction, but really it's not. It's actually a very simple explanation. First of all, they didn't measure days and nights the way that we do. So if we're trying to apply a 72-hour, you know, midnight to midnight type cycle that we're accustomed to, that's a modern Western way of measuring time, and it's not how they did it then. In fact, the people of Galilee and the Pharisees, one religious sect, would measure it from sunrise to sunrise. And the Sadducees, another religious sect, and those that live in and around Jerusalem would have measured it sunset to sunset. But what they both would have also accepted is this. They measured days by any part of that day as being a whole day and night. So if you're willing, this is what the explanation is, and it's very straightforward. Jesus is crucified on a Friday, so you count the hours uh, that he's, he's after he's died on Friday as a full day and night. All of Saturday, full day and night. The part of Sunday, full day and night. And on the third day, yet he still rises. You can even find this, this usage of language going back in, go back into 2 Chronicles, for example, chapter 10, and you'll see the same type of exchange about something being three days off, but actually coming on the third day. It's just how they measured time. So I just want to make sure we kind of take that, that what seems like a big contradiction out of the timetable, if you will. So I want to fast forward you now. Last I talked to you was Palm Sunday. I mentioned to you that over the next couple of days, at some point, we don't know exactly which day he came back into Jerusalem and cleansed the temple. But by Thursday, he sends his disciples into the city to prepare the Passover supper that everyone had come into the city to celebrate. And we believe that happened on Thursday evening. So on Thursday evening, they have what's called the Last Supper, which is the Passover meal, which recognizes God's uh, saving Israel while they were enslaved in Egypt, rescuing them out of that situation and setting them situation and setting them free. And so on Thursday night, they have the Last Supper and they leave. They go just outside the city into the Garden of Gethsemane, where through Judas's betrayal, they come and arrest Jesus and they take him off back into the city for what will be his trial. 
So if we were to overlay that first Easter, that would be our Thursday night during this Easter week. The disciples, though, are kind of lost at this moment. They're wrestling with hope and a growing uneasiness that, the, that things are, not, are going downhill pretty quickly. The kingdom had come near, that had come near felt like it was starting to tumble over before the foundations were even firmly set. Tomorrow being Friday, and with the trial and the crucifixion, would only confirm their worst fears. But soon the beauty of the kingdom of God would spring forth, and the darkness would give way to the light as it must. But today, it was increasingly dark. Friday indeed did bring great darkness with the trial, the conviction, the, the beating, and the flogging, and the ultimate crucifixion and death of Jesus that day it came creeping at first, barking, whispering, wicked and muted celebrations that ate at what hope was left. All that would be seemed to evaporate into the mountain that shadowed the valley below with death as they took Jesus and, the other, and criminals out onto the Mount of Golgotha just outside the city where they crucified him. As the night took hold, a deep and heavy fog flowed over each one, stealing all comfort and all understanding and into the void of disillusionment they plunged with unanswerable questions. Into the unknown of promise they waited and hid. As a long night of Friday that we call Good Friday lifted, sleeplessness gave way to a new harshness, a reality that, that all had been for naught, the quiet of the Sabbath to ponder over and over again. All that had happened and didn't happen. The shaking of neighbors' heads and the questions hammering away at their inner hope. Conversations mingling fear of the same fate. After all, they came for him and look what they did to him. How long is it before they come for us? And words of promise about a third day. Death set proudly upon the thoughts of the people that day. Soldiers settled in for a called watch that they thought was unnecessary to sit outside the tomb of a dead man. As the numbness of the second day drifted into another restless night. The third day opened like any other. The third day opened with faithful servants trotting through the early darkness to honor the death of the man deserving of a proper burial. Only to discover the soldiers that were supposed to be guarding him, gone. And much more than that, discovering that Jesus himself was gone. As they hurried back to share what they had seen, surely the knife of bitterness and domination under the hand of the Romans and anybody else that had control to do this, drove a knife further into their grief. Testimony, frustration, and bewilderment followed as the mist of a forgotten promise obscured their understanding. More witnesses brought no new hope. Peter and John ran to the tomb to see what they could find and what they could see. The search was on. Authorities searching for a body, religious leaders searching for a cover, covering story, and Jesus searching for his followers. Chaos hunted for an explanation. Into the turmoil of humans crafting their own explanations, Jesus revealed himself and stepped into where they were. Hope flooded back in, death scattered back into shadow, 
Forgiveness conquered sin. Life was given. Eternities to live relit. Now maybe you can relate to disciples this Easter. Some moments where we're, we're seeing clearly and just wanting, waiting for Him to do something perfect and glorious around us to rectify the whole situation, to undo all the wrong that we see. But that hope moves into testing and trusting, sometimes in our lives for years. As what we had hoped for pauses and seems to evaporate into our difficulties. But if we do not give up, the Bible promises that He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1.9 Y para mis hermanos y hermanas, Dios es fiel y justo a perdonarnos de nuestros pecados y limpiarnos de toda maldad. 1 John 1.9 To set things right and set us free in His forgiveness. Jesus' death and resurrection shouts over and through our situations and our histories with an emphatic, I am yours and you are mine. These next few days, let's not hurry to the end. Let's, not, let's take a walk with the disciples hour by hour this week. In their story, we find our own. Let's not, let's not reduce the most significant moment in the history of the world for all people of all times to chocolate bunnies and plastic eggs. Although, have them, there's nothing wrong with it. He endured knowingly collapsing under the weight of our rebellious hearts and our selfish sins to call each of us to Himself. That's the message of Easter. Just want to extend to all of you a very happy Easter. And as always, peace be with you.